Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Always a pleasure. This is, we're coming up on the first Sunday after Epiphany, which is actually the Baptism of the Lord Sunday. Yes. And our first reading for the, our first lection here in the, the Old Testament reading is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which is it almost reads like a commentary on the baptism of Jesus, right? Like here we have this picture of this of the servant of the suffering servant or the servant of the Lord here, who you know the Lord has put His Spirit upon him, and He'll bring forth justice to the nation. Uh, there's this great pa- line in this passage: a bruised reed He will not break, and a, dim, a dimly burning wick He will not quench. And He's the one that will bring shalom and the justice, the Lord, the righteousness. He's the uh, will be the agent of those things to bring about those things for God in the world. Yeah, that's great. Um, I love that line that Matthew has, and I'm I don't recall exactly um, where it is in Matthew. I think it seems like it's chapter twelve, but I'll look it up here. Um, regarding a bruised reed, he will not break, but he will lead justice to victory. Right, justice to victory. I think that's a an interesting, you know, concept. Um, have you? Do you know what passage I'm talking about? No, in Matthew 12, you said. I'm thinking it is. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's 12. Yeah, it is chapter 12. It's um, well, it's it's the preparation is is in chapter 11, and it's what did you expect when you would see went out to see John the Baptist? A reed shaken by the wind. Um, Oh, you know, did you expect to see a man in soft clothing? And that reed shaken by the wind, I think that's an allusion to John standing there with something like a hyssop branch, dipping it in the water and baptizing a mass baptism as people are crossing the river. That's what I think is happening in the baptism. I guess we can get to that in a moment. But um, it, when you saw a reed shaken by the wind, I think that's what he's referring to. As you approach the plain of the Jordan River and as you get closer what do you see? You see this shaking of a reed. Um, that's the image. But it keeps on going. And in chapter 12, it says that regarding um, uh, Jesus, there's it's a fulfillment passage. Um, my servant, and this, is, this very text is cited, um, chapter Matthew 12, uh, 16 and following. Um, this was to fulfill... Well, let me read it from verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom 
my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope until he leads justice to victory. I think that is a really interesting passage. And it cites, of course, this. It's just drawing from this very passage of Isaiah 42. Um, he leads justice to victory. And it's not said exactly the same way in the Isaiah passage, but it's, it's a set. I think it's a Septuagint quote. I'm not, I'm mis- if I'm not mistaken. Amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because I, I think when we look at these, uh, Old Testament prophecies, because there's lots of, you know, debate about who who is the suffering servant. Is it is it this messianic figure? Is it Israel? Is it Isaiah? I mean, you know, different scholars go back and forth. But when you think about First Peter and First Peter one verses ten through twelve, where he says concerning the salvation, the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predict when he predicated or predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy spirit sent from heaven. So there, I mean, it's interesting because we had the sense that whatever uh, the prophets knew or however foggy the, 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 the predictions were for them that, these things that that, that that they were still, they were being moved by the spirit who would one day reveal how these things would be fulfilled in Christ. Mm. I like uh, N.T. Wright's take on the whole servant. Uh, is it Jesus or, or Israel? I think it's Israel and Jesus is the true Israel. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's the son and we're going through Matthew. Of course, this is a gospel reading. And uh, last Sunday I did an overview orientation to Matthew and try to point out how the whole Gospel of Matthew takes us through uh, the history of Israel in so many ways. You have the first words of it, uh, the Biblios Genosios, which is the the book of the generations, which is a Genesis statement that's explaining uh, what's going to follow from this. And then you have uh, the next uh, you know phase is Jesus uh, is. Is is Israel out of Egypt? I call my son. Then he goes through the red, you know, the Red Sea of baptism. Then you know, chapter five, he's like Moses, and it goes right on through. And the very end of it, the very end of Matthew, is like the end of the Old Testament in Hebrew. The Hebrew Old Testament ends in Second Chronicles, uh, same books, of course, but they have the historical books late as the sec- the last thing. And that last uh, scene in the sec- in Second Chronicles is Cyrus, who's now the king of all the kings of the earth that God has given authority to in earth to bring the people back to rebuild the temple. But, you know, at the end of Matthew, it's all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples of all the nations. So it's a very parallel thing. It runs all the way through the gospel of Matthew. It's amazing. And I'd I'd say Jesus is a true Israel, and he fulfilled Israel's true mission. And so there's really no contradiction between Isaiah, uh, the servant of Isaiah being Israel and it being Jesus, because Jesus is the final true Israelite who gets the job done effectively. Yeah. And doesn't Antti Wright say one of the things that Jesus does that's unique is that in by Jesus' time, you do have these two figures in Second Temple Jewish consciousness, the, the messianic figure and the suffering servant figure. This, But 
Jesus kind of fuses the two and shows that that the two are 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 one and the same. Um, that the that the messianic deliverance comes through the suffering servant. That these aren't just two distinct figures, but in Jesus they're one. Prophet, yeah. priest, and king. Right. Yeah. Or a better biblical order is priest, king, and prophet. Prophet. That, right. Yeah. Sure. So the response to that lesson of of Isaiah forty two is Psalm twenty nine. Uh, ascribe to the Lord, you gods, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory, the glory to his name. And then it goes on to give this flood imagery, this water imagery. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is upon the mighty waters, you know, and so forth. It moves right on through. And then finally, <clears throat> in the temple of the Lord, all are crying glory. God, the Lord, verse 10 the Lord, Yahweh, sits enthroned above the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forevermore. The Lord shall give strength to his people. The Lord shall give his people the blessing of peace. Amen to that. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. Through the jungle of doubt, to the river so deep. I know I'm searching for something. And on to our epistolatory reading here. We have Acts 10, verses 34 through 43. It's interesting because we don't have the, we don't have the baptism of Cornelius here, uh, but we do have sort of something that's linked to baptism where Peter it sees that God's spirit is with these Gentiles and he, it, his mind is opened that uh, this whole, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So here we have this sense that, you know, that the message, and again, connected to Isaiah 42, you, you have this sense that the, the this deliverer, the suffering servant, the, the agent of, of the Lord will bring good news to the nations. And here we have this example where you have these folks who are Gentile and Roman and and all the, and yet it's clear that God has was working among them. Peter sort of opens his mind to the fact that in this new in this new era of post Christus that that Gentiles will be welcomed in through faith. Mm. Yeah, I think of this passage uh, on a couple of uh, points. Number one is um, the the purpose statement of of Acts is how the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria to the remotest part of the world, or the eschatos, you know, the last of the earth, the end of the earth. Um, well, in, in Acts 10, of course, the whole story of the first Gentile convert fits into that very importantly. And it is the one of the most cited um, passages throughout Acts. I mean, it's repeated. This, the story of Cornelius's conversion and, and his household baptism is repeated in chapter 10, 11, and 15. And it, it, it frames the whole Gentile mission. And it frames it with this, a man will come to you, chapter 11 says it this way, and speak words to you for the salvation of you and your household. When you get to Acts 16, this is the jailer. Um, the same thing is, is, is stated there. Uh, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, you and your household. The first Cornelius, the uh, first uh, Gentile is Cornelius, and he's a God-fearer. But in Acts 16, the jailer is not a God-fearer. He's a pagan. That's what the it seems that way from the context. He's about to kill himself. He's got Stoic, Roman Stoic 
point of view. And he's a household case too. And they're both framed by you and your household. So essentially the gospel is going forth. Um, the world is being baptized. The flood of the world is going out. The water is going forth from the great temple, uh, Ezekiel's visionary temple in, in baptism. And therefore uh, the Gentiles are being converted. He's going to lead, uh, the Gentiles uh, to justice and justice to victory, the victory of, of course, in God, Matthew's gospel, all the nations becoming disciples. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And I think you're right. It is climactic for how, yeah, how the gospel go from, you know, Judea, you know, Judea to Samaria to all the earth. And here we have a key. There, right. there is one other thing in this passage that uh, strikes me. Uh, it's, it states here in the only the only place in the New Testament that states this, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's the only place I'm aware of in the New Testament where it says Jesus drank. Uh, it's clear that he eats bread with them. He eats bread and fish by the sea in the end of God, uh, John. In Luke, it says, you know, when he comes back after being on the Emmaus road and he says, do you have anything to eat? And they give him, they give him, um, fish and a honeycomb. So very symbolic food there, fish, the fish, the sea of the Gentiles and honeycomb, the land of milk and honey, right? Two kind of symbolic, uh, foods there. And, but it never says that, uh, he drinks with them. In fact, in uh, Luke, it, you know, Jesus says, I will not drink this cup again with you until the new covenant comes, until the kingdom comes. And we, you know, we're waiting for him to now pick up the cup again. And you never have the a little vignette where he takes the cup and drinks, you know. But you do have this statement by Peter, which makes it clear that in those meal events in the resurrection days, uh, he ate and drank with them. And therefore, what we can say from from Luke's point of view is the kingdom came uh, because he says, I'm not going to drink this cup with you until, you know, I, I uh, drink it again in, anew in the kingdom of God. Well, um, Paul, uh, Peter's words here tell us that he did, in fact, uh, eat and drink with them. Therefore, the kingdom came. Yeah. And one of the things I think that's beautiful about this passage is it, it almost reminds me of Joseph saying to his brothers, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that the people's rejection of God and the rejection of Christ wasn't God's rejection of the people. In fact, I, I, ironically, their actions in rejection are actually the means God used, uses to welcome them in. And so it's God's you know, capacity to redeem us always outpaces our capacity to sin. <laughs> and, and here we have this like great picture of it here that the ultimate sort of uh, rejection becomes the means by which God accepts and welcomes in the people of God in the in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, amen. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, fathers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. On to the gospel reading. The, the baptism of Jesus, which comes to us here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter three, verses three, uh, chapter three, verses thirteen through seventeen. I, I think this is like one of the most interesting things, just for like one of the basic theological questions. I think that 
rises in people's minds if they hang around in church for a little while and hear a text like this and they're like, well, why the heck was Jesus baptized? <laughs> it makes sense why we're yeah. baptized, right? But why, you know, why the baptism of Jesus? In fact, it all, it seems like John the Baptist, who's, this is his business, baptizing, he's got the same question. <laughs> I, I don't, this should, this doesn't seem right. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, and again, the righteousness, you know, the, the bring justice to victory. So, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. So here, um, Jesus seems to think that it's not, it's not just uh, appropriate, but that it is something that fulfills what's something at the heart of why he's come. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we have to realize is that baptism is not new. Okay. That's why you can pair these texts together of uh, passages out of Isaiah, and there are many, um, that speak of um, b- baptismal imagery. So, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, in Acts 8, what he's reading there about the servant, if you just read a verse or two before and after, it says that this servant will sprinkle many nations. That's a baptismal image. Um, if you you know read, go back to the beginning, it's the waters flow out of of Eden, and uh, you know, when you go back to the Exodus, it's crossing the Red Sea. Paul calls that explicitly baptism. Yeah, yeah. First Corinthians ten, crossing the Jordan River is another image. We have it in Elijah and Elisha crossing the river. He lays down his mantle. That's very important. John comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So what is he doing? Well, Colin Brown from Fuller Seminary wrote up this article a few years ago, and he said what John was doing was organizing a symbolic exodus across the Jordan River so that a renewed Israel would enter into the land afresh again. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Why is it the Jordan River? Well, it's a boundary marker, just like crossing the Red Sea is a boundary, just like entering into the land was a. And it's a so counterintuitive, right? Because because everybody's thinking, well, where do you go to get clean and become the people of God? You go to the temple, right? And it, no, 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 no. We go out here, <laughs> right? <laughs> we've yeah, got, we've got to sort of revisit our own origin story. But it, it's a theme of the renewal of Israel. So I've I've kind of written this up in a couple of places. I've got a booklet on baptism. And I, I think the problem with the modern evangelical world is they look at baptism like the first time anybody ever talks about it is John the Baptist. And that's really a mis- misreading of the whole Bible. The, there's the water theme goes all the way through the Bible. So I could say, you know, it's in out of Eden flowed rivers. There are springs in the patriarch's narratives. There's the Red Sea. There's the laver at the tabernacle. There's Joshua leading Israel across the the Jordan into the land. There's the Temple of Solomon with ocean and basins of water on chariots to create a stylized river that flows out to cleanse the nations. There's Ezekiel and Zechariah that see visions of rivers flowing out in the New Covenant. There's washings, of course, um, in the tabernacle and the crossing of the Red Sea. Those are called baptism in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 9.10, the the sprinklings and various uh, ablutions in the tabernacle are called, quote, baptism. That's the word that's used for it in Hebrews 9.10. And so I think when you get to the New Covenant era, there's going to be a cleansing of the whole world. That's the, that's the imagery that's been building up to. And Israel has to be renewed in the land. That's what John's theme is. So when Jesus uh, says to him, to John, on this kind of weird question, like, I don't, why are you being baptized? Um, and uh, Jesus says, it's permitted to be so to fulfill, you know, plureo, to fulfill 
all righteousness. So many times uh, in, I think it's like 12 or 13 times, I'd have to look back and see, but it's it's a dozen times or so that Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was written. That's the same word. It's a word that means literally fill up something. But when it's used in this metaphorical sense, it's it's to fulfill some, you know, biblical passage or some some prophecy. And so he uses that phrase a number of times. And this is the only time he doesn't cite a specific word, you know, a specific text. He doesn't say, well, Isaiah 42, this was to fulfill, you know, this passage by Isaiah. Here it's just fulfill all righteousness. And why is it so general? I think it's so general because it is in fact um just the image that Jesus is coming now to cleanse the whole world. This one who is Messiah has been promised to undo the curse, undo uh, the corruption, undo the cursed ground and wash his people. And in fact, wash all the nations. That's what Matthew says at the very end. I mean, this is what he's saying, you know, in chapter three, but by the time you get to the end, it's very, very clear. Go, Disciple the nations, the ethne, and baptize them. Them refers to nations. So the whole world is to be washed. And that's a, that's a flood imagery. And we have that exactly in 1 Peter 3.21, um, that the household of Noah was saved and the antitype is baptism, uh, 1 Peter 3.21 says. So it's a, it's a really rich theme if you follow it all the way through. It's not at all. I think we just have to open our imagination to see all that the Bible is saying about this tremendous theme. Yeah, and here I think, too, because you have creation imagery and new creation, you know, the God speaking, the Spirit hovering over the waters, you know, we have, and then also, so you have sort of new Adam imagery, too, you know, and, and you have you have new Israel imagery, because you're saying, as you're saying, he goes, where does is, where is Israel go after they go through the the baptism of, of the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness, right? But exactly what, happens what Christ with, does, yeah. Yeah, same thing Christ does. But it's interesting because in the wilderness, in the desert, he says no to everything Adam and Eve said yes to in the garden. And yes. and he and in, in the wilderness is the place where he he faithfully follows the the voice of the Father as opposed to the way Israel sort of falters in the wilderness. So it's, it's, it's new Adam, new Israel. It's in, in a really beautiful sort of picture here. Yes, and I would be remiss if I did not uh, include the great flood prayer by Martin Luther uh, as we oh, yeah. for this week. Almighty and eternal God, who through the flood, according to your righteous judgment, condemned the unfaithful world, and according to your great mercy, saved faithful Noah and his household, yet drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh with all his army in the Red Sea, and drowned uh, and has led your people Israel dry and safe through it, thereby prefiguring this bath of your holy baptism, and through the baptism of your dear children, our Lord Jesus Christ has sanctified and set apart the Jordan, and all water for a saving flood yeah. and an ample washing away of sins. We pray that through your same infinite mercy, you would graciously look down upon this, your child, and bless this child with a right faith in the spirit, so that through this saving flood, all that was born in this child from Adam and all which they have added thereto might be drowned and submerged in the holy ark and preserved, sorry, and that may be separated from the unfaithful and preserved in the holy ark of Christendom, <laughs> dry and safe, and may be ever fervent in spirit and joyful in hope to serve your name. And with all the faithful may be worthy to inherit your promise of eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That's a pretty comprehensive point there, but I think if you connect 
the flood with baptism. So that's, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, Psalm 29 is the, the response Psalm. And then, you know, first Peter three twenty one says the flood is a type of baptism. Um, and then you see, you know, this crossing the Red Sea and what, what comes through in Luther's, uh, marvelous biblical theology here is that the flood and baptism have two aspects to it, right? So you saved faithful Noah through the flood, and you drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh in the Red Sea. You saved Israel going through the Red Sea, but you drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Um, you, you know, you saved faithful Noah and his household, but you drowned the unbelieving, yeah. wicked world. So baptism kind of has this twofold uh, meaning. We hear in certain... Uh, quarters, we must follow the Lord in believer baptism. That's typical Baptist language I've heard many years for my life. And in a certain sense, uh, we do follow the Lord in believer's baptism because we do become part of his body. Whenever you're baptized as a child or as a, an adult, uh, we do, we're baptized and all those that are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. We've walked into Christ. It's as though we've crossed the river and now we're in the promised land. That's the imagery, I think, that we should take. And we participate in Christ's reign in the world. And the the identifying event, the identifying rite is baptism. And we cross into Christ. I think the language about baptize into Christ, a lot of people said that's immersion. Well, first of all, baptisms in the Bible are not all immersions. Um, plainly, that's the case when the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 10, calls baptism sprinkling in the tabernacle. So they're not all immersion, even if that's a dominant use of the word. But when it's baptism into, I think baptism into is that crossing metaphor. We are crossed into Christ. We cross the, the Red Sea into this other place. We cross the Jordan River into the land. That's a, a, a main a main consideration. We're baptized into Christ. So however it's done, whatever the, the ritual is, the result is we go into Christ. And I think that's something that we need to know. And for those that doubt and have questions of assurance, uh, Luther asked this question. I would say it's a good one. Are you baptized? And if you're baptized, yep. then, okay, take comfort in that and then live out what that baptism means. So if, if I include, let's say, with Luther, are you baptized? And I'll say with the Westminster, you know, uh, shorter catechism, larger catechism, are you improving or are you proving or are you living out your baptism? I mean, those are just the two simple things to 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 ask, uh, the objective reality and the subjective walking in the light of that reality. And this is my favorite place for the theology of Star Trek, this text for the baptism of Jesus. I, I, you know, Star Trek two through four, the original movies, are all kind of one big story where Spock dies at the end of Wrath of the Khan, and then they sort of become criminals, you know, because they, they go to find Spock's body because they think it's been reanimated by this Genesis planet. And then as they're coming back to face their trial, the Earth is being torn apart by this probe, and they go back in time to the 1980s and... It's just great. This is or 1990s or something, and they all, you know, and then at the end of Star Trek Four, after they've saved, you know, saved the Earth, they still have to go in their disciplinary trial for like stealing the ship and doing all this stuff, and they call the accused forward, and and Kirk and the crew step step forward, and then Spock comes from the gallery and stands there, and the president of Starfleet says, "Mr. Spock, 
you do not stand accused. And he just says, I stand with my ship. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think this is this beautiful picture of Jesus where John's like, but we, why are you going to be? He's like, I stand with my shipmates and I'll get the ship home. And he's, he stands, you know, in our stead and, and we can trust him because he's identified with us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or Pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.